wonderful singing this morning. You may be seated. Amen. Good singing indeed. Take your Bibles, turn with me to Genesis chapter number 18. Since they have officially now made an announcement, I can say congratulations to Zach and Sarah. Some of us that have known for a while, but they finally said out and in the public that baby Kirchner is on the way. But they're not the only ones. There's like six people that are presently attending this church that babies are on the way. So if you don't want to get pregnant, don't drink the water. I mean, good luck. I see some of our prime timers smiling at each other, the husbands and wives, like, hey, hey, <laughs> watch out, right? Uh, anyway, Victoria is due at the end of March. Laura is due in July. Sarah is in August. Jenny is in July, August. Is that right, Justin? Uh, Megan, is Kyle and Megan Wax not here this morning? Megan Wax is do. And then the latest one I heard was charity. Congratulations to you as well. And so that's a good thing. That's a blessing. I mean, there's only a couple ways you can grow a church. I have a friend that's a pastor and he's got like 14 kids and they have aged up over the 20 years that he's been a pastor. That's one way to grow a church. I mean, if you have that many kids. Um, Jessica and I chose just three. That's all that God gave to us. So we're done. We can drink the water, honey. Uh, and so all kidding aside, it is a joy and it is a privilege This morning we're looking at our series, Walking with God, and in particular in Walking with God, we're looking at Abraham's walk with God. We have studied so far Abraham's surrender, we've studied Abraham's stewardship, and this morning we're going to see his faith in sanctification. That is going to be the title of the message this morning. So let's jump into chapter 18 of Genesis and read the first five verses then this morning. The Bible says, And the Lord appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that, ye shall pass on. For therefore, ye come to your servant, or for this purpose, you've come to your servant. And they said, so do as thou hast said. Father, help us, I pray this morning, as we come to the word of God. As we study and know the truth that is written in these pages, may we understand you but also how we are to approach you, how, are we, how we are to be living in this world. We're thankful for Abraham, the father of our faith, the Bible teaches, the father of us all. It is in the same faith that Abraham has that we are to have. We are to exercise day by day. I pray that we do so. This morning, Lord, as we look at this idea of sanctification, it's a deep theological term, and it is difficult if we're not careful, but the life of Abraham gives it so plainly to us. As we leave, as we depart, as we go our ways today, having heard the truth, I pray that the truth itself will then make us free, free from sin, free from our own flesh and selfishness, 
Bless us, I pray, in this hour we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. God wants His people to be different. There's no argument about that. There's no discussion about that. It's the reason that Jesus Christ came and lived and died and rose again. It's so that we might be saved, yes, but that we also theologically might be sanctified, set apart unto Him. Abraham has faithfully surrendered all to God, we have studied. He is trying to faithfully steward all for God. Now we come to His growth. We come to His personal separation. We come to His life of sanctification. Sanctification is a theological term. It should not scare us, it should inform us, and it should encourage us. It is a twofold process, this sanctification. In the New Testament, it would be said this way, we put off the old man and we put on the new man. We are new creatures created in Christ Jesus unto good works. This is the idea of sanctification. We understand it theologically then this way. The process begins by we setting ourselves apart from all that is sinful. All that is natural, all that is of this world and of the devil. Think on that for just a moment. What does that entail or include in your life? And the answer is quite a bit, I'm sure. The second aspect of the process is then what we are to do, and that is to pursue the holy nature of Almighty God. What we're going to find in the life of Abraham this morning is that he was one that understood what he was and what God wanted him to be. He was understanding of what God wanted him to pursue. It doesn't mean that he was perfect, but he was pursuing that idea of sanctification. God's desire is for a believer in Christ to be changed, to be different, to be unlike the world around them. It's an amazing thing for me as a pastor to see so many Christians become amazed at this simple Bible truth that we are to be different. Friend, can I tell you this morning, we cannot truly want salvation and not want sanctification. So many Christians want that. Well, I'll take a little bit of Jesus as long as I can keep a whole lot of me. And the answer is, no, that's not the way it works. That's not sanctification. For our younger generation, perhaps it would help if I throw in some adjectives. As I have aged, I have learned that the language changes and that adjectives help so that you get the seriousness of my challenge. God wants radical change. Does that help? God wants intentional change. I'm mocking slightly because I'm getting older. I'm allowed to do that. Here's the one I came up with, and I think this is actually what it is. God wants wholeness in your holiness. He wants you all in. He wants you completely invested in being different from the world. And what we're going to find in Abraham where he comes to God in chapter 18 and what we're going to find the snippet of him in chapter 19 and what we're going to find in his failure in chapter 20 and what we're going to find in the favor of chapter 21 is a life that is progressing through this process of sanctification, of becoming or being different than what he was before. Faith produces sanctified living. We find four stages in Abraham's sanctification, and it begins first in your notes by acknowledging the friendship. 
If we have been saved, we are now the friends of God. We are now followers of God. We have entered into a relationship with God. It's not about rituals. It's not about religion. But it's about what we have in Jesus Christ. Abraham did not know that, but we do. What he knew was that God had called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and from Haran he had left and he had come. In that surrender to God and his call, in that faithful response to the grace of God coming into his life, he trusted God no differently than how we trust God. Sanctification begins, friend, with you desiring to be God's friend. Here's what Jesus said of this process in John 15 in verses 13 and 14. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He's speaking of himself in verse 13. But then he pivots and speaks to us in verse 14. Ye are my friends. What condition? A condition of sanctification. If ye do whatsoever I command you. He doesn't say that we are saved by this. He says we are sanctified by this. We prove our friendship. We understand who God is and what God expects from us. It is wanting to be more like God and less like the devil, less like the world, and less like our natural inborn flesh. Here's what James said of old father Abraham in James 2 and verse 23. The scripture was fulfilled. Which saith, Abraham believed God and it was imputed. That word imputed means reckoned or accounted. It was put to his ledger for righteousness. What was the result of this? And he was called the friend of God. Amen. This morning, my dear fellow believer, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, he desires to be your friend. And he wants you to be friendly and kindly affection to him. Friends know and understand each other. Friends like each other. Friends have shared interests in each other. Friends want to spend time together. Friends help and protect each other. God has blessed and protected Abraham all along the way. That was his part in the friendship. In Genesis chapter 18 and beginning there, we find how Abraham begins to exhibit his part of the friendship. Our friendship with God is not just a taking relationship, my dear fellow believer. It is a giving relationship. God's friends first had personal humility. This is what Abraham had. In verses 1 and 2, here is a wealthy man. Here is an accomplished man. Here is a man of status and influence. Here is a man that the world around him would take note of and that potentially feared and respected. This man sees three men show up at his door, and what does the Bible says he does? He runs and he bows down. You want to be sanctified this morning? It begins by acknowledging that as the friend of God, he's in control of the relationship you aren't. He runs to his God, to his Lord, and he bows down. God comes to us in grace. We respond in faith. Abraham saw the Lord passing by, and he openly humbled himself. He ran to the Lord. He bowed himself to the Lord. Abraham knew who God was, and he knew how one was to entreat God. Amen. A lot of Christians demand things of God. And may I say to you, God does not respond to your commands. Or demands. It is the one of humble heart that he lifts up. It's the one of true humility, not feigned humility, not false humility, 
but true humility that God says, that's the one that I want to be with. That's the one that I know truly loves me, and that's the one that I will pour out my grace and love into their life. What Abraham did in these first two verses is that he ran to God, he bowed to God, he offered to God because he knew God, and he knew how important God was in his very life. The second thing that we find about acknowledging friendship is in verses 3 through 8 in chapter 18, in that, he, in that he pays homage or honors God. You say, well, that comes with humility. It should, yes. There's a lot of people in this world that have a sense of humility, or maybe they have a low esteem of themselves or a low valuation of themselves, but it isn't coupled then to truly honoring or desiring to honor God. This is the proper way to be a friend. We understand who we are in the relationship. We have the proper personal humility. But in the process, we also have the right honor or homage that we offer and bring to God. The word homage simply means honor and respect that is shown publicly. Abraham wasn't hiding this. All of his servants could see this. Sarah could see this. Hagar could see this. Ishmael could see this. Everyone in his home, everyone in his camp, everyone in his service could see that Abraham thought this one of these three was very important. Is that true in your home? Can people note that when the Word of God says something, when the Spirit of God leads you to a truth, and that truth is part of your life, that you adhere to it, do those around you know that's true of you? Do you pay homage to God? In honoring him. Abraham wanted to honor the Lord when the Lord showed up in his life. Do you? A friend honors the Lord in his actions and in his attitudes. Abraham pays homage in two ways. He offers to the Lord, then he communes with the Lord. Look in verse number 3 again of chapter 18 and read with me. The Bible says, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, if I found grace, that's what that word favor can mean in the Old Testament, pass not away, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. In other words, he is trying to Comfort the Lord. So often in the Christian's life, we try to confront the Lord. Instead of accepting and inviting Him in and showing the place of respect that He rightfully deserves, we are contentious with the Lord. Verse 5, And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. Can I tell you, a sanctified life comforts the heart of Almighty God. It encourages God. Have you ever stopped to think about you living like the devil discourages God? And that you living like Jesus Christ encourages God? As a friend, you ought to consider that this morning. Verse number 6, the Bible says, And Abraham hastened into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal. Knead it and make cakes upon the hearth. Notice in these next verses, every time we find hasten or quickly. Verse 7, Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched, and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, and he hasted to dress it. And he took butter and milk and, and the calf, which had been dressed, and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree. And they did eat. Notice who ate, not him, them. Did God need to eat that? No! Why did he consume that which Abraham offered? Because Abraham was giving or paying homage to him, and God will never misuse your honor that you give to him. It's an element of the sanctified life. The problem for most Christians is we don't think it's worth it all. 
when we will see Jesus. And here Abraham is proving to us that it is. He gladly receives that which we offer to him. He serves the Lord by washing his feet, we find in this passage. Envision the symmetry of that statement for just a moment. Abraham washes what I believe is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, who would thousands of years later wash the apostles' feet in service in the upper room. There's a great picture of true humility and service in that. Abraham honors the Lord by wanting to be in his presence. In verse 3, he says, pass not away from... I want you to stay with me, God. I want you right here with me. Oh, that's a sanctified life. Sanctified living. Verse 4, rest yourselves under the tree. God, be at peace. Be at comfort in my life. We used to have those wristbands, right? What would Jesus do? And then we change it to, what would Jesus watch? What would Jesus listen to? What would Jesus hear? And all of those are fine and right, but the question is, would he do most of the things you do? Oof. Yeah, the Bible is very real. What he says is, feel comfortable here. Rest here. Can you say that to God? God, you should feel comfortable in my life. You say, well, he's the God of the universe. I have a higher view. Good. Have a high view of God. It'll change how you live. But he ought to feel comfortable in the choices and the decisions you make, the actions you do every day. Verse 5, he says, comfort ye your hearts. And they said, so do. Friends, respect one another, my, my good friend. Abraham knew who this was. It was God, and he knew what God wanted him to do. He wanted God to stay with him as long as God would allow. What is the application then from this for us this morning? God is moved by Abraham's outward and open display of friendship. Look down in chapter 18 and verse 16. The Bible says this. He says, And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And he said, look, here's the way from my house, and here's the way to the place that you're going to judge. Did God need his help, by the way? No. He knew the way. But Abraham, one sanctified and living and wanting to walk with God, said, God, wherever you're going, I'm going. Let me just spend a little bit more time, even if that means walking to the fence post with you and show you the path. Verse 17, and the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely come, become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he hath spoken of him. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see. He speaks in verses 20 and 21 to Abraham, telling Abraham exactly what he's going to do. Friend, understand this. God wanted Abraham to know the why, along with the what and the how. What have you come to do? I've come to destroy wickedness. How are you going to do that? By passing judgment in my wrath. Why are you going to do that? Because I want to explain to you, Abraham, that in your sanctified life, you're a blessing to the world and wickedness is not. The closer you draw to God, the more time you spend with Him, the more He will reveal about Himself and about His workings through His Word. That's what this passage teaches us. It's what this man Abraham's friendship with God meant. 
Sanctification is found in our friendship with God, but it is also found, number two in our notes, in our adopting fervency. Fervency, a zeal for the Lord, a passion for the Lord, a desire to do that which is right and be concerned with what is right. In the latter half of chapter 18, and just a snippet, two verses in chapter 19, we find the fervency of Abraham that helped save the lives of others. Sanctified people, and the sanctified people of God, I should say, can save the world. Do you believe that this morning? Most Christians don't want to live for Jesus because they don't think it's going to make a difference. What's the point? And so when they look at themselves in the mirror morning by morning, shaving and brushing their teeth and getting themselves ready, they don't think or meditate or contemplate at all that today in my life and my actions, I am reflecting Christ. I am giving hope, health, and life to the world. They don't think that. Abraham did. Abraham understood that the call that God had given to him was to be a blessing to all nations. He just told him that. He had told him that in the first uh, calling in Genesis chapter 12. In you I will bless all the nations. They that bless you I will bless. Those that curse you I will curse. That was the promise. And so he understood not that he was more important, but what God had called him to was important. Do Christians today think that? Do we understand that what we have, the hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, actually can change the world? Or do we think it just gets the pastor ginned up on a Sunday morning in excitement? You see, Christianity is not about what I believe. It's about what we believe and what we go out and do. The purpose in the believer being sanctified is to rescue others and ourselves from God's wrath towards sin. We find Abraham's fervency first in that he pleads for souls. Chapter 18 and verse 22, the Bible says, And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood yet before the Lord. This is the first time in the process of communion that we find Abraham not standing with God, but he's literally standing before God. That's a daunting thought if you think about it. Only a few people in the Bible did that. Moses did it. We're going to get to him in a couple months when we study his life. Job did it, and it was a stinger of a response that Job got when he stood before God and demanded of him. The Bible here says that Abraham, in his fervency to see others at least saved or rescued, maybe not in the sense that we say today of salvation, but rescued from the wrath of God, he stands yet before the Lord, the Bible says. I hope that I would earnestly plead for the wicked like Abraham did. I don't know if I found a city that God was going to judge that was engaged in the sin that Sodom and Gomorrah were engaged in, if I would be like, God, why don't you just save them? Or if I would pray, God, why don't you just strike them? Well, Kyle, are are you, Pastor, are you saying it's okay what they were doing? No. God tells us it's not okay what they were doing. Over and again, Old and New Testament, he reminds us that the homosexual lifestyle is not right. But it doesn't mean that he wishes and wants them to spend an eternity separated from him. The question is, are you willing to plead for the souls even of your enemies? That's hard. That's hard. Yet that's what Abraham did. 
It's sanctified living. It's different living. It's separated living. It's that which has put off the old man and has put on the new man. It is learning and thinking in Christ Jesus, as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 4. The Bible tells us that the men of Sodom turned their, or the men, excuse me, here, turned their faces towards Sodom. It meaning that their intention was to destroy the wickedness of that city until the matter was done and settled. The Bible tells us Abraham stood yet before the Lord. The Lord loves mankind more than we ever could. He died to rescue and redeem mankind. However, in this instance, in the life of sanctification, what God saw, what God knew he would see in Abraham, was that a man would stand up for mankind pleading for their souls. Do you know why we're not reaching more people for Jesus Christ? We don't have people pleading for souls. It's part of the life of the sanctified. God knew that Abraham would do this. God knew that Abraham would petition and pray and plead for the souls of the city. God also knew that there wouldn't be ten righteous in the twin cities filled likely with thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. That's what happens at the end of chapter 18. Abraham goes not into negotiation mode, but goes into true pleading mode. God, I just want this. If it's 50, if it's 45, if it's 40, if it's 35, until he gets him all the way down. If there's just 10 people, what is he thinking? He's thinking, surely Lot has lived righteous. Surely my nephew who saw my faith in God, who saw my faith in the promises of God and the covenant of God, surely Lot believes the same thing that I do. And he didn't. Oh, Lot was just. We can read that in the book of Jude in 1 Peter. The Peter writing there tells us that that Lot himself was saved. He was just man, saved so as by fire. He was one that was hauled out of the city. But he had no impact on his city. What a great picture of an unsanctified life and a sanctified life. Abraham is pleading for souls. Lot is practicing the sin with those sinners. And so often that's what we find in our Christian homes even today. God's desire is that we rescue the perishing and that we do, in fact, care for the dying, as the hymn writer says. Abraham, a man of faith, intercedes for the souls of his fellow man. His hope is that Lot is living righteously as he is. Of course, we know and God knew that Lot had not been living as righteously as Abraham. Lot had not been, uh, excuse me, Abraham yet pleaded for them to be saved. That is our task. That is our calling to hold on to and to hope for the fact that there are other righteous souls who want God's holiness and righteousness as much as we do. Do you know that's the secret of a church, a healthy church? When you come on Sunday morning, you're not comparing yourselves with yourselves. We're not trying to say, well, I'm better than Joe's family over there. They're a living mess. What you're hoping is, I hope Joe had a good week living holy and righteous because I've hoped to have had a good week living holy and righteous. That's a healthy church. That's how we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ in Galatians chapter 6. It's an interesting fact as well that sanctified living finishes in this aspect in verse 33. The pleading for souls is part of communion. Notice what verse 33 says. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham. Part of the process of communing with God. That means fellowshipping in intimacy with God, in knowledge, in understanding. Part of that is pleading for souls. Moms and dads, plead for your kids that they would be righteous. 
Well, hey, Johnny knows better. He or she knows exactly what I expect of them. Yes, but articulate what you expect. Love and pray for them. Share with them what the expectation from the Word of God is. The Bible says Abraham returned unto his place. He pleaded for souls, and that was part of the fervency that he had adopted into his life because of faith in God. But in chapter 19, we find there was also purposeful separation. Chapter 19 is a chapter of judgment, to be sure. Raining down fire, we had a conversation uh, this week or last week in our family devotions as to whether Mrs. Lot ended up as a pillar of salt, like frozen like this, right? I'm looking back, and I turned into salt. Got to remember, I've got a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, almost 12-year-old, and an 8-year-old in our house. So the conversation with three boys is very vivid, right? Was she like a statue of salt? Dad personally believes that she was dissolved to salt. Our bodies and our elements, when they're dissolved, basically become that, ash and salt. If you look at the chemical compound, who cares what it is? The point is, that's the judgment that came upon them all. And in the process of that, Lot is rescued out of it. But we read these verses in chapter 19 and verse 27. We pick up and it says, And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where, the, where he stood before the Lord. Now that's important, by the way. If you're going to plead for souls to be saved or rescued from their wickedness, guess where you cannot be in their wickedness? He was where God was. God did not go down with the two angels to the city of Sodom and Gomorrah to destroy it. God returned to his holy temple because he had left his friend. Now we find the fervency of Abraham is a purposeful separation. Abraham doesn't go rolling back down into the valley, into the wickedness, and say, Hey, everybody, are you okay? He goes back to where God was, and he stood there. It's important to note. Verse 28, And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah. And toward all the land of the plain, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. This isn't the first time we've seen this phrase, smoke of a furnace. It's in Genesis 15. It is the justice and wrath of God. It is His holy character. It is the all-consuming fire that is God. It had passed through the sacrifice that Abraham was asked to steward as a picture and type of the salvation that Christ would provide for us. It is that... Picture the smoking furnace that we must understand. He purposed that he would not join himself to it. Abraham would not associate himself with Sodom. He wouldn't visit it in chapter 13. He didn't visit it in chapter 14, nor would he take anything from the king of Sodom when they had won the victory. Nor did he travel here with the angels to destruction. Hey, let me go down with you guys and see if I can help. No, this is God's business. All I can do in my business is plead for the soul and purpose that I will stay separated from the wickedness. It's a life of sanctification. When the destruction of the rebellious wickedness was done, he looked down on the rubbled heap and lamented. When he looks down, by the way, upon the smoldering destruction, at this juncture, Abraham does not know if Lot survived or not. Think of that. What's a loved one? How long had Lot traveled with him? How important was Lot to him? It was like a son that he never had because his brother, Haran, had died. Lot's daddy. This was a boy that he cared for and that he cared much for. And as he stood in that place, purposefully separated, he still had a longing for the soul of the one who was down in that mess. 
Christian, when will you see your loved one and your neighbor, your friend, your co-worker as one who is lost in their sins? Would you not go back to the place where God is and see them in their need? Don't join them in their sin. Oh, hey, if I, if I just join them in a drink here, or if I just join them in a swearing here, or if I just join them in this sinning activity here, they might accept Jesus more if they knew I was one of them. Don't be one of them. Be different than them so that they see something different in you. Sanctification is found in our friendship with God, in the godly fervency that we maintain for God. But it also includes, number three, avoiding failure. Wouldn't it be great if Abraham was perfect? I'm glad nobody amens me. Are you perfect? No. If Abraham were perfect... We would read his story and say, ah! Jessica and I have had some good conversations recently because there's a difficult passage of Scripture in Job 42 where it says, Job repented. And I think Job's a really good guy. And the answer is, he is a really good guy. And that's what we as mortals have to struggle through, pastors sometimes included. Really good people can sin. God does not expect perfection from your Christian life. In your sanctified life, you don't have to be the perfect Christian. You have to be the pursuing Christian. And how do we avoid failure in our Christian walk? I put in my notes here this statement. I'm a Christian. Why do I struggle with the same old sins? And the answer is, welcome to the life of faith in the fallen world. You will sin. Thanks for the pep talk, Kyle. Glad I came. The key is you should not stay in that sin, nor should you ever serve that sin. Abraham here fails in chapter 20 of Genesis a second time with the same problem, and that is fearing man. Well, there's a lot that the Bible says about the fear of man. A believer should never be motivated or moved by it. I cannot understand how a man who rescued Lot from the captivity of nation-states or a confederacy of nation-states fears just one king, Abimelech, but he does. In fact, in chapter 20 and 21, he's going to run into Abimelech twice. In Genesis chapter 20, we find Abraham's failure yet again. When he surrendered to God back in Genesis chapter number 12, we noted in that message, he failed when times became difficult. A famine came into the land. And that's easy to do. When we are first saved and we're early in our Christian walk, sometimes we struggle with, God, are you really in control? God, are you real? God, do you care about this? God, are you aware of this? We ask questions and we naturally fail in our infancy. It's like a toddler walking. Boom, down they go. Dad helps him back up. That's the early walk. That's Genesis chapter 12. As he realized there in Genesis chapter 12 and better understood God, Abraham overcame that failure. But now he's living in the promised land. But the Philistines come along. Oh, those rotten Philistines. Egypt in chapter 12, we were introduced to the idea that from there on in the Bible, they are a picture of the world. Can I submit to you this morning that from this point forward in all of the Bible, when you read of the Philistines, they are a type of our flesh that assaults us, that attacks us. 
Abraham's early failure was not standing firm before the world in his faith towards God. Here, his failure is not trusting God over his own flesh. And so we find in avoiding failure, the failure comes from our sin nature. Abraham's failures always flowed from his own sin nature. His faith in God was strong, but so too was his flesh. The war of our natures persists. Abraham had less help than we do. Today we have the comfort of the Holy Spirit who in our salvation helps us in our infirmities and our weakness. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, who helps us with our infirmities. We have the weapon of the Word of God to overcome and defeat our flesh. Abraham merely had faith in God's promises. That should have been enough, but that's all he had. He knew that God so far had kept His Word and that God had promised him a lineage and the promised seed, so he should not have feared Abimelech, but he did. Chapter 1 of Genesis chapter 20, or verse 1 of chapter 20, tells us that Abraham leaves Bethel. The Bible says, And Abraham journeyed from thence toward the south country, and dwelled between Kadesh and Shur, and sojourned, or dwelt and moved about, in Gerar. Here's his problem in verse 2, And Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is... My sister. Oh, he was really good at telling half-truths. You know what we tell our boys, by the way? Half-truths are whole lies. I've yet to have one of them say to me, so if I tell a whole lie, will it just be counted as a (laughs) half-truth? The answer is yes. Abraham has purposefully here traveled south, and each time... He travels south. There's only two times in his life it does not go well for him. Metaphorically, it is teaching us that when we are walking with God, do not depart to the world or to our flesh. He stops short of entering Egypt at Gerar, and he stops where the Philistines dwell. In this story, we do not read that Abraham hatches a plan to tell Sarah that they should lie together. He just lies without her help. It seems to be that this was the family default position when trouble came, and it was a sin that easily beset him. It is amazing if you read chapter 20 of Genesis that in verse 5, it's not Father Abraham, godly Abraham, who is called one of integrity and innocence. It is literally Abimelech, the king of the Philistines. God literally says to the fleshly world, hey, it's not your fault this time. It's actually the man of faith's problem. He caused this. Oh, our weak faith causes all kinds of problems in the world today. The picture then should be easy for us to decipher. Abraham didn't have to tell this lie, but instead of living and acting consistently in his faith, his failure was about to cost the world around him. This has happened twice, as I said. Pharaoh says to uh, Abraham in chapter 12 and verse 18, What is this thou hast done unto me when God came to judge him because of Abraham's lack of faith? Here, Abimelech in chapter 20 and verse 9 says, What hast thou done to us? The question from Abimelech makes us pause and realize that if we live by faith, then one, our flesh becomes powerless. I can't do anything about this. I didn't bring it on. You and your lack of faith caused this. Consider that for just a moment. Your sin nature is always going to be there, and you can always overcome that sin nature by faithfully walking with God in the Word of God. Abimelech says, we didn't ask for this. You and your lack of faith cause this. 
In verse 17 of chapter 20, the failure ends with Abraham praying to God for Abimelech and restoring him. The flesh had become emboldened because of Abraham's lack of faith and took Sarah to wife. God intervened and Abraham was told to ask for forgiveness, to pray for them. And he does. And the Bible says, and God healed Abimelech. The secret friend to overcoming our flesh then is prayer. Don't fear what your flesh may do because it is capable of all kinds of terrible sins. Fight it with prayer. Stand up to it with faith. That's the story here. How do you avoid failure in your sin nature? And the answer is through prayer and supplication. But letter B, the failures from our selfishness being nurtured. Selfishness nurtured. If sin nature is the how it is possible that we sin in our saved life, then selfishness being nurtured within us is the why we fail in our sanctified life. You do not have to sin. You choose to sin. That's the story that's unfolding for us here. Abe, you didn't have to do this, but you chose this. Notice verse 11. Look there with me in chapter 20 and verse 11. We find the heart of what he's struggling with. This is the key to understanding the mindset of selfishness and the failure in sanctification for Abraham. And it might be a lesson for each of us this morning why we engage in sinful behavior. Here's what Abraham says. Because I thought. That's his mistake. Because I thought. Surely the fear of God is not in this place. Now, doesn't that sound pious of him? Well, look how wicked these people are, bunch of losers. You're not as good a Christian as I am. Well, correct your thinking. You're as bad a sinner as they are. You weren't called innocent. You weren't said to have integrity. You were a sinner. Oh, yes, you're saved. Yes, you're, you're justified in God's eyes. Yes, you've had righteousness imputed. Yes, all of those things are true. But you are as sinful as that guy. You're no better than him. You thought wrong. He nurtured that selfish desire. Can I tell you, the only reason faith was not in that, or the only reason the fear of God was not in that place is because the faith of God was not demonstrated in that place. The only reason the fear of God was not perceived in that place is because Abraham and Sarah did not exercise their faith towards God in front of the people in that place. Consider that tomorrow morning in your workplace, in your home, in your neighborhood. We like to complain about the state of the world, but as Christians, we don't do a lot about the state of the world. We watch the news and we say, there's no fear of God in that place. Maybe we should turn it off and look at the reflection in that screen and say, because there's no faith of God flowing out of this place. The application here is failures will come. I wish they wouldn't, and I pray that they don't, but they will because our flesh is weak. It's still a part of who we are. Here's two questions that you must ask to minimize your failures. First, what does my natural man want? Whatever you come up with, avoid that. Well, that sounds pretty easy. I know. 
I mean, I wish that there was some great intelligence that I had in myself. I don't. I have a great book of intelligence with the Spirit of God's intelligence to share you with you His wisdom and knowledge this morning. If you ask yourself the question, what do I naturally want? What pleases my flesh? Whatever you come up with, just don't do that. Sounds easy. Here's the second question. What am I nurturing within me right now? What is it that I like? What is it that I don't tell anybody about, but I got hidden right back here in the pocket of my heart? Whatever that is, get rid of it. Is that easy? It's that easy. It's that simple? It's that simple. Always has been. Sanctification is being God's friend. Developing and demonstrating godly fervency. Diligently avoiding failures. And finally this morning, accepting favor. Chapter 21 of Genesis is a wonderful chapter. There's two stories that come in the pages of this chapter or in the verses and lines of this chapter. And they show us God's grace and favor in our life as it did in Abraham's life. First, Sarah conceives, and second, Abraham properly interacts with Abimelech. Oh, here's Abimelech again. By the way, your flesh will never leave you. I wish it would forsake us, but it doesn't either. Thankfully, we have one greater that is in us than he that is in the world. We start first in the accepting of favor. And what I mean by that is accepting or understanding God's grace, receiving God's grace. There's a lot of people that don't understand that they have to be receptive to God working in their life, showing favor to them. The first is the graciousness of new life, letter A. Hagar's child was a child of the flesh, while Sarah's child was a child of promise. Isaac represented the promise of life from God for Abraham, through which the lineage and seed would come. The fleshly life will constantly harass and ridicule the life of true faith. And that is the story of the two sons in Genesis chapter 21. There will always be war between the flesh and the spirit in your walk. Always. It will never go away as much as we hope it might. It never will. The only remedy for Abraham, according to God, was to cast out the bondwoman and her seed. Paul tells us as much in Romans chapter 6 and 7. He again emphasizes it in Galatians 3 and 4. Notice what he says in Galatians 4, and I'm going to trace the whole passage, so stay with me, and then I'll apply it at the end here. He says, tell me, in verse 21, ye that desire to be under the law, do ye not hear the law? In other words, hey, you Jews that got saved want to keep practicing the rituals of religion instead of living in the relationship. That's the ultimate or end of the question that he's asking here. Then he goes about answering it. He says this, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born after the flesh, or after the manner of the flesh. It was, it was arranged and orchestrated by Abraham and Sarah to bring about God's promise in a way that God had not intended, without God's blessing. In other words, it was an act, it was a process, it was a work of their own flesh. But he of the free woman was by promise, which things are an allegory. They're a picture, they're a type, Paul says. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar or Hagar. For this Agar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answereth or looks to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is above, is free. So the faith we have in Jesus Christ is 
far superior than anything that was under the law, is the context of Galatians 4. But in the context of our faith, as we understand what it is here, the new life we have is far better than anything in the old rituals. He goes on. For it is written, Rejoice thou barren that bearest not. Break forth and cry thou that travailest not. For the desolate hath meant... For the desolate hath many more children than she which hath an husband. Now, we brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. You and I who have faith in Jesus Christ. But as then he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit. That's what we see play out in Genesis 21. Even so it is now. In other words, that old law, that old curse of the sin, that old life, it torments us in this new life. Don't you wish sometimes you didn't have to sin? Well, listen, if I'm standing behind this desk and the preacher and I'm telling you on the Bible that I struggle with sin just like you do, friends, you're going to fight it until the day you die. Nevertheless, he goes on, what saith the scriptures? Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. You have to choose. Which one do you want to make happy today? Ishmael or Isaac? So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Hagar symbolizes the law. Sarah symbolizes grace. Ishmael was born of the flesh and was a son of a slave. Isaac was born of the spirit and was a son of a free woman. The two sons picture the Jews under their slavery of the law and the true Christians under the liberty of grace. God commanded Abraham to cast out Hagar because his blessing was upon Isaac. Christians today were not under the law, praise God. Abraham, however, had to choose his new life And forsake the one that he had tried to build. That's what we have to do as well. But I've done so much good. If it's not in Christ, it's no good at all. That's the way it is. You have to accept the grace, the favor of Almighty God. His favor brings to us new life. The second story in Genesis 21 is of how he interacts with Abimelech. He dug a well. In digging the well, Abimelech comes. It seems some of his soldiers come and try to confiscate the well, and there's a disagreement. Abimelech and his chief military advisor show up at the end of chapter 21 to deal with Abraham. Oh, man. Is he going to fail again? Before, he's just worried that his wife was pretty and that someone would take her. By the way, remember, she was 90 years old and that beautiful. Beauty knows no age. It's the truth. The end of chapter 21, we find, beginning in verse 22, it's not just a gracious new life, it's a gracious new law that we live by. The second story of grace is Abraham's second interaction with Abimelech in his life. In his first dealing with Abimelech, Abraham failed in fear. Here he succeeds in faith. He solves the problem by offering a good financial and business deal to Abimelech that costs him a lot. By the way, he's going to learn a lot about sacrifice in the next sermon. If we're going to do great things for God, it's going to cost us. Why? Because it costs God in grace immensely to save your soul. 
the salvation of our soul and the sanctification that we live should cost us something as well. And what he realizes is the new life that he has has a new law in it, and it's a law of grace. Oh, Abraham didn't understand it like we do in his fullness because of the New Testament, but he understood that God was gracious and favorable to him. He should be gracious to Abimelech. Show what faith in God looks like. How we treat people matters. It is the clearest sign of new life in Christ and that we are living by the new law of Christ. Abimelech remembered his first run in and wanted to have God's blessing because he knew Abraham was blessed of God. Abraham now wanted the same thing for Abimelech. He makes an oath. In fact, Beersheba, what the the location is called, means the well of the oath, the well of my promise. It was a wonderful place throughout the Old Testament of communion with God. He demonstrates the grace and favor of God that he had received and he would now share and show to others. May I ask you, sanctified Christian this morning, do you show the grace of God in your daily engagements, your daily activities? Oh, how wonderful a sanctified life can be for the whole world. You say, well, I thought it was just for me. Listen, you're living for God To your fellow man, our two commandments are this, love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. Demonstrate the law of grace. When Christians choose to live and act by faith, the whole world sees the difference. In closing this morning, Abraham's faith set him apart. It sanctified him for the rest of the world to see. He was God's friend in personal humility and with proper homage to the Lord. He was fervent in pleading for souls and purposeful in his separation from wickedness. He experienced failure, and I wish we wouldn't, but we do. Why so? Because of his sin nature and because of the selfishness that he nurtured in his own own person. Yet he knew God's gracious favor. How? In the new life and in the new law of engaging with others. The question then this morning is, do you care, believer, about living a sanctified life? Abraham's given us four steps so that we can, by faith, live sanctified in this world. Father, help us, I pray, as we close.